Good afternoon and welcome to the show. I've got a lot planned for you today, so sit tight, get comfortable. We've got some great guests joining us in a little while. We've got Romana King. She's going to be returning. We're going to be talking about the market, of course. And Greg Bennell penned a great article saying, Fed's housing plan not seen as a major game changer. Well, we're going to talk to Greg about that, obviously. The Feds did release what they considered a fair housing plan, or I would say a desperate housing plan. And uh, we'll, we'll delve into that in a little while and uh, definitely get some uh, some of the nuts and bolts of it. Um, not a lot, in my opinion, but we'll talk more about that. And uh, <clears throat> shortly, I'm going to have James Bell. He's the Managing Director of Tax Solutions Canada. The reason why I'm having Mr. Bell join us, he's actually a former CRA investigator. And you've heard me talk about this, that the CRA are going to crack down on the house flippers, the people that are buying the condominiums flipping them before they close or for that matter flipping them once you take ownership and not paying the taxes there's a lot of it going on and i definitely want the insight from a professional like mr bell but before i go down there um some stats released this past week that i thought i would share with you when we start talking about square footage prices and right now the five most expensive areas in toronto of course is toronto downtown at $818 per square foot. That's what people are paying, mostly in the condominium market, but right now $818 per square foot. Oakville, it comes in at $627 per square foot. So if you're looking at some of these big detached homes in Oakville, if you're talking 3,000 square feet, guess what? You're up over almost and very close to $2 million. And looking at rounding out the rest of it is Richmond Hill at $585 a square foot. Vaughn at 510 And look, Markham. Markham's at 499 Didn't make the $500 per square foot. Sorry, Markham. Better luck next time. But you know what? The rest of the market, it's interesting. If we take a look at Canada in general, you know what? There's some square footage prices that most people, I'm pretty sure, would be interested in. Windsor, $94. Moncton, $99 per square foot. St. John's, $166. Halifax, $130. And, of course, Charlottetown is $175. Again, not too bad. But if we take a look at Vancouver, they top the market, of course. The west side of Vancouver, $1,210 per square foot. Now, by comparison, if you're looking at some of the premier spots in New York City, you can be in excess of two to three thousand dollars per square foot so where are the numbers actually going well you know right now we're watching toronto condominium market continue to go up and one of the reasons why this should be of a concern to you is what are the builders doing about it well recently some of the condominium developers have turned around and they've actually cancelled their properties being developed. So just recently, in the last few weeks, one of the developers decided to bail out of, um, it was the museum flats, and they turned around and decided not to go through with it. They said it was too expensive. They originally sold this stuff in around $600 a square foot, and with the price of $818 today, you wonder, did they really decide not to do it because it was too expensive, or did they decide that there was too much meat left on their bone? 
So are you worried about your pre-sale condo now not closing? This is one of the concerns that you should have. And unfortunately, when we talk about the builder's offers, folks, they are really set up for the builder. Right now, builders can turn around and they can cancel. They can extend. I mean, extending in a marketplace like this typically is not a bad thing, of course, unless you want to get out of your parents' basement. But on top of that, if, if the market continues to go up. But what happens if a market decides to crash? You know, can you then turn around and let's say you bought at $600 a square foot, all of a sudden it's now worth $400 a square foot. Do you leave the builder high and dry? Well, if you do, you, all those deposits that you've paid into your purchase of agreement of sale is going to be due to the builder. In other words, you don't get any money back. So if the value does drop or tank, you are still on the hook. Now, they can actually sue you at a later date for the shortfall. That's right. You bail out of the deal, then the builder can actually sue you for the agreement. So let's say you bought it at $600 a square foot. All they achieve a year later is $400 a square foot. They can come after you for it. Now, will they or will they not? Because it's kind of bad press if they start doing it. Well, chances are some of them will because they don't want to be on the losing end. It was up to you to decide what happens when the value goes up. Well, builders can actually turn around and cancel. For any number of reasons, they can cite things such as cost overrun, did not achieve their sales target, could not get their financing for their construction. They could have said delays based on the city when they turn around make applications. So there's a lot of reasons why builders can now get out of their deal. And this is why I always tell people, read your agreement of purchase and sale, especially from a brand new builder. If you can't see it, touch it, then you can be you know, at risk of it being canceled. And it's starting to happen a little bit more commonly and we'll wait and see over the next uh, 18 months if this is going to happen on a regular basis. Now, I uh, had alluded to the Fed housing plan not seen as a major game changer. When the federal government turns around and decides to get involved in housing, you wonder exactly who are they trying to appease? $11 billion over 11 years. What's a billion a year and we're talking all of Canada. Um, is that a lot? I mean, when we take a look at the fact that a new building going up in the core of Toronto at 80 stories plus is going to be a billion dollars. That's just one building. So why is why why is the federal government making such a big stink of it? You know, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau came out and said, you know, it's the first time that they've actually had a federal, you know, case on this. Um, I struggle with this because, you know, some of them are saying that they're going to help social housing and then some of them are going to help for more of a low income style of ownership. But why are we keep targeting the most expensive market? Why can we not offer uh, builders incentives? You know, right now there's the question of the Canadian government or for that matter, the provincial government turning around and, you know, letting loose the purse strings and letting some of their primo land go at a better price to entice some builders. But are they that against private companies making money that they're going to turn around and they're going to say, well, listen, we're going to subsidize a few things. We're going to control your expenses. I think that they're looking at it completely wrong. And sorry, uh, again, I know most of you think that I rail on the provincial government a little bit too much, but it is what it is. You know what? They wanted to create rent control. They want to create problems for people. Uh, they want to turn around and hold developers off from developing. They make things very, very long in process. You know, why can't they clean up the process? Short, you know, short term it instead of five years for them to get all the permits. Why not make it two? You know, the, every time they make a change, they turn around and they delay them. They have to go to a, you know, a committee. They have to start looking at things differently. Why is it that they are so hell 
bent on making it difficult for the developers to get their product to market. And of course, you know, one of the biggest things is people are very concerned about, you know, green space. We want to make sure that we have enough of it. But there are lands that can be developed, and yet the government is not working with them. But throwing out this from the federal government, and of course, then the wind government hopping on the coattails of it saying, hey, look at us, look at us, we're doing things. Tell you what, why don't you clean up your own backyard first? The most important thing I think that should be happening, and some of the money is supposedly going to be designated to it, let's clean up the the, the Toronto housing, the Ontario housing. Let's get this stuff cleaned up, bring it up to code, you know, make it better. You know what? If you have to do additions to the buildings, you can do it. You can turn around and make them a much better place to live. Let's get people out of places that you could, would, that some people would love a slumlord to own it because they take better care of it than the provincial government does. So let's, let's clean up that first. And then let's talk about affordable housing of, if you're going to build it for people to be able to afford it. Because the biggest problem that we have right now for sure is decent rental. Okay, now you got in rent control, so you're not going to get any more rental built. So that means the government's going to have to build it. Well, good luck with that. So clean up the stuff that you actually own. And then from there, put some incentives out for the builders. You know what? They deserve to be able to turn around and make a profit. They're the ones sticking their necks out. They're the ones that are holding all the credit lines. They're the ones taking the loans. So give them an incentive to build what you require. It'd be a heck of a lot better than turning around and doing a bait and switch. I don't know. We'll wait and see. But um, now I'm going to uh, I'm going to bring in my uh, my first guest, Mr. James Bell. He is managing director of Tax Solutions Canada. He is a former CRA investigator, and I uh, I'm looking forward to talking to him about what is happening with the government and some of the flipping. So welcome to the show, Mr. Bell. Thank you very much. You are the uh, managing director of Tax Solutions Canada, but you are also a former CRA investigator. Can you tell us a little bit about what an investigator does at the CRA? Uh, certainly, Todd. Thank you very much for having me on the show. There are various auditor or investigative jobs at the CRA, ranging from a general auditor of business and individuals, uh, ranging right up to a criminal investigator uh, who looks into tax evasion, which is a criminal offense. And I've done the full range of those uh, jobs at the CRA. And so now you are in more of a, uh, I guess, a private practice. Is that correct? That's correct. I left the CRA four years ago, and now I put my knowledge and experience uh, of the CRA practices and procedures and benefit my clients accordingly. Mr. Bell, there's uh, there's a lot that I want to talk to you uh, today um, because one of the things that, of course, uh, with all the new building and construction going on, um, you know, there has been a lot of conversation that the CRA is going to start cracking down on people that are buying real estate, perhaps not closing, flipping it. Um, and um, I, I have to go to a quick break, but if you're okay staying put with us, I, I want to get your take and, you know, from both both perspectives, talking, you know, what really the, the, the mandate of the CRA would be to work with people that are flipping properties. And also now for you being a representative for people, um, just before we go to a quick break though, um, what is the best way for people to reach you? People can reach us with our toll-free number at 888-868-1400 and one of our client service team members would be happy to uh, connect them to me. Great. And is there a website that you have? 
Absolutely. We have it at uh, www.taxsolutionscanada.com. Mr. Bell, I'm going to ask you to hang on, folks. When we come back, I'm going to have, well, he was a former CRA investigator, and this is why uh, we've asked him to join us, because what is the CRA thinking of you when you flip a property and don't file the taxes on the profit that you made? I know a lot of you are doing it. I know that because you call into the show. We talk about this all the time. It's reality, but guess what? You owe taxes, and that's a reality. So stay with us. We'll be right back with Mr. James Bell, Managing Director of Tax Solutions Canada. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I've got Mr. James Bell. He's Managing Director of Tax Solutions Canada, and he's a former CRA investigator. And the reason for him being on the show today is I want uh, to get some really good information for all of our listeners that if you are buying investment properties and flipping them, that uh, there's tax implication. And Mr. Bell, just before we uh, went to break, I was just kind of you know, leading up to the scenario where the CRA has now actually put uh, a true voice to this saying, hey, listen, folks, if you're, if you're buying uh, investment properties and you're flipping, there are taxes do, uh, due. Can you explain the process here? What we're talking about uh, most recently are these so-called assignment sales, where someone will buy a condo uh, based on the plans and it may be finished in three years. Uh, sometime between putting their initial deposit down and the close of the property in three years, that person may choose to sell their option to buy that condominium. And with Toronto and Vancouver's uh, real estate market such as it is, uh, likely that has risen in value. And the gain that that person, uh, the assignment uh, generated, they're supposed to report that as income. And most people are either not reporting it at all or they're not reporting all of the gain. It's pretty cut and dry. If, if we're looking at it from a CRA perspective, you know, when, when somebody goes in and they buy from a builder, you've got agreement of purchase and sale. And let's say, hypothetically, they agree to pay $400,000. They're going to close three years from now. You know, we go through two and a half years. The market has gone up. And let's say they're able to achieve, you know, a $500,000 sale price. So they turn around, they flip the paper. They don't actually close on it. You know, we've got what would look like a gain of 100000 of course, if they involved any form of costs, such as, you know, the assignment cost uh, that the builder will charge, let's say, $5,000 for, uh, if there's a real estate agent involved or any form of legal fees. But let's say they've got a taxable gain here of $80,000. At that point, is this deemed income is it you know i i know it's not capital gains but maybe you can make sure that our listeners understand that it's not capital gains because they didn't take title most of these transactions the canada revenue agency would certainly consider this to be business income and not a capital gain capital gain meaning that you would only pay tax on 50 percent of the gain they would consider this gain uh, fully taxable in your hands and if you do not report that gain uh, that would be considered tax evasion and that is a criminal offense. I'm pretty sure that you've had clients that are in this situation. What do you advise them? What is the best process for them to be able to con- conduct this properly? I mean, there are expenses that they should be able to obviously write off because it's part of the transaction to make the gain. Yes, I mean, that, we can talk about the actual quantum of the gain and argue about it, but the nut of the issue is the fact that they haven't reported the income. Again, that puts them in a very precarious situation. A lot of people don't think the CRA can find them because these transactions, these assignment sales, aren't recorded anywhere. 
But what the CRA is doing now is they're utilizing the courts to compel the builders to provide the list of all the people that initially purchased these condos. See, that was the one that I was looking for. And, and so the, the truth is, is that the builders have to show the paper trail for every transaction that they complete. So if it originally started out as, let's say, buyer A, and then they ended up assigning it to buyer B, the CRA can actually see that buyer A did it, and then the closing, meaning that when they see it on land titles, they'll see that it's somebody else. That is exactly correct, and they know that first person, if they're not the person, if it's the same person that's on closing, they will check to see if that person A did report any kind of gain. And that person A has uh, a problem, and, and you're quite right, we do help a significant number of people with these issues, and very successfully in terms of getting out from under the enormous penalties and interest that would otherwise be applicable. But most importantly, we help them get out from under the criminal prosecution aspect of these assessments. So folks, if you're just tuning in, I've got Mr. James Bell with me. He's the Managing Director at Tax Solutions Canada, and he's a former CRA investigator. And uh, Mr. Bell, one of the things I think that people should be concerned about is that also, I don't know if people are aware that when you add the actual gain onto your income, you can actually come out of come out of the year with a different tax bracket so let's say you're you're in a lower tax bracket but this can this not bring you up to a higher tax bracket if you have enough of a gain well absolutely it can bring you up very very quickly into some of the highest tax brackets and your marginal tax rate could be certainly around 50 percent or higher depending on what you had originally reported so the tax implications alone are significant and so we have strategies that will allow you to minimize that tax hit and avoid the penalties and interest that would ordinarily be applicable but the most important thing is if the CRA hasn't sent you a questionnaire yet then you should come forward now to do what they call a voluntary disclosure and that would be your best strategy for dealing with this however if they have contacted you we have alternate strategies that are very effective as well when they they released a report uh, a few weeks ago saying there's 2700 files right now under scrutiny there's a lot more than that, obviously, with the number of buildings that have been produced and people have been done flipping and closings over the last few years. Um, how far back are they able to go on some of this construction? Well, further than people think, uh, I can assure you. If there is an element of fraud or tax evasion involved, there is no limitation as to how far back the CRA can go. If, let's say, they, they, they did this transaction five years ago, and but they have not yet sought out that builder, is it still advisable for people to turn around and, and do that voluntary disclosure, as you had mentioned? Absolutely. The voluntary disclosure program, we have clients that have un, unreported income or, or gains from 15, 20, 30 years ago that we can help them uh, deal with. So, Mr. Bell, uh, one more time, um, well, the best way for our listeners to reach out to you, and by the way, folks, I do encourage you to to work with a professional like Mr. Bell, uh, Managing Director of Tax Solutions Canada here, because this is going to become a real serious issue. So, best way for them to reach you? Best way to reach us, and we offer a free consultation, by the way, they can reach us at our website at uh, www.taxsolutionscanada.com, or they can call our toll-free number at 1-888-868-1400. Well, Mr. Bell, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for setting uh, you know, a little bit of it straight, and I'd definitely like to have you come back in the future as we see this, uh, this entire thing evolve. 
It would be my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Folks, that was Mr. James Bell. He's the Managing Director of Tax Solutions Canada. One of the reasons why I asked to have him on, folks, is that this is a very serious matter. And you know what? The most important thing is, obviously, if you're transacting in real estate, make sure you keep it clean. Coming up after the break, Mr. Greg Bennell. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I just had a very interesting conversation. Um, and you know what? I, I hope everybody, you know, if you if you need to, do me a favor. Um, go to our website uh, here at News Talk 1010. Make sure you click on Simply Real Estate. Go to SoundCloud and click on this one because Mr. James Bell had some, uh, you know, very good information. He's Managing Director of Tax Solutions. And I want to make sure everybody knows what they could be up for if the CRA comes knocking, if you've uh, if you flipped a property and haven't uh, claimed it. So um, joining me now is Greg Bennell from House Money and from the BNN Network. Greg, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be here, Todd. I love talking to you because it's so amazing. I, I read articles in the in the papers, all sorts of releases. There you are, you know, getting the opinions out. And I got to tell you, what did you think of the housing plan that the feds released this week? May as well just let's dive into that part mm-hmm. because it's a, kind of a hot topic. Um, you know, all the uh, all our hosts here at News Talk have been talking about it all week. Is the government actually doing anything for us here? Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, uh, you and I have these discussions all the time. So we understand the difference between affordable housing slash social housing and housing affordability. Now, everyone I've talked to this week said it is, this is laudable. If you're going to build homes for the Canadians who are most at risk of being homeless, uh, then this is something we should do. We shouldn't have this kind of problem. But that's a completely different discussion than the discussion that we've been having, uh, you and I, or the discussion we've been having on BNN, about the affordability issues and the fact that the average earning family in Vancouver or Toronto or in the surrounding area can not afford by any stretch of the imagination the average home. So when we got this plan from the government this week, we're really talking about social housing. Now, they did throw a few things in there in terms of, and I found the, the language rather woolly. It was it was really squarely on social housing. They talked a bit about the kind of things we talk about, about just people who have jobs, they, they work in Toronto, they work in Vancouver, they can't afford to live there. They said they want to promote more balanced housing markets in high-priced areas like Vancouver and Toronto, new tools to reduce mortgage fraud. But it was all really woolly language. The plan itself talked about 100,000 social housing units. So I don't think we really made a dent in the issues that you and I talk about all the time. And that's the fact that home prices have skyrocketed. The governments have tried to do various things, pull various levers, but in the end, they just don't really know how to, how to uh, really reconcile it all. How does yeah. the average kid who's maybe making 60 or 70 grand out of school ever buy a house in the big city? You know, Greg, um, and, and, and I love your points on this because, quite frankly, I, when, when, I, when I heard it and when I, when I read through it and I thought to myself, okay, what are they really telling us? And I analyzed it like this. You know what? They're go- they want to throw a billion dollars out per year. Okay, there, go- there goes your taxpayer money. We, we shouldn't necessarily just be focusing on the Vancouver and Toronto markets because, you know, Canada is a, you know, a very large country. We've got a lot more people that we've got to take care of. When we talk about social housing, you know what? How about let's fix up some of the, the dumb that are out there make it that you know they come a little bit closer to code I know that most of them aren't going to get there but a billion dollars sure is not going to do it I mean you know you could take that entire budget and try to improve some of the government housing and it'll be gone in, in a heartbeat the idea that it was packaged up 
that they're trying to make millennials feel that they're going to try to do something for them in the hottest markets in the world, I think is a real bait and switch. And when I when I analyze everything that they were saying, as you said, you say woolly, you know, I, I just say, listen, both feet are in their mouths, okay, because they can't take them out for some reason, they don't want to tell it how it is. And quite frankly, they have to stay out of certain parts of the market. I mean, you know, the fact is, is that in downtown Toronto today, your square inch of real estate, and I'm not talking about what's, what, it's, what it's built, I'm talking about the actual earth itself, is at a premium price. Mm -hmm. It's boardwalk, okay? Toronto and Vancouver <laughs> are boardwalk and park place. Those places don't go down in value. Not not the real estate. Look, we can we can change our square footage prices. You know, maybe the government eases up on some of these soft costs that p developers are dealing with. But at the end of the day, you know, I actually, I, I call BS on their entire program because 11 years, $11 billion, I mean, that's barely scratching the surface. Yeah, and then some people saw the, also the headline when they talked about 10 years and 40 billion. It's like, wow, that sounds like a lot of money. That is highly contingent on cities, on provinces, which we know are cash-strapped as well. And they're always looking to Ottawa for more money, like in terms of transfers, to come up and to match the program. And there was also about $11 billion in low-interest loans. So it's not $40 billion just being doled out by Ottawa. Uh, the provinces, the cities got to show up, some of its loans. And, and, the, and the exact same point. When it comes down to the things that we've been talking about, as you said, Toronto, Vancouver, expensive real estate, this is not what this plan is about whatsoever. But there's enough vagueness here that perhaps people thought who weren't paying attention that carefully, thought, oh, maybe I will own a home one day in Toronto or Vancouver uh, with my $67,000 a year job. It, there, there's no answer for that in this. And the thing is, too, when I talk to everyone, I say, so what can Ottawa do? There's a lot of things about land planning and zoning and that have nothing to do with their jurisdiction at all. <laughs> so there is no easy answer. I said, well, Ottawa should do this. Well, you know, and it's interesting because a report that was uh, just released, we're talking about the square footages, uh, you know, the cost, things such as Vancouver, you know, uh, if you're buying a condo in Vancouver, you're $1,200 a square foot, you know, tr downtown Toronto, $818 a square foot. What, what do, you know, and, and, and I, I asked this question, tongue, uh, you know, tongue in cheek, is that what do people believe the square footage price should be? Because you've got cost of construction. I mean, you know, you you know, you and I are downtown all the time, mm -hmm. and you know, try, just trying to get to the studios in, in itself. Now, it's it, it it's a game of walk them. You know, you you, you got to keep walking away from things because you know you've got a building crane here, you've got a dump truck here. Everything as far as Toronto is screaming construction. Costs are through the roof. How do people believe that they should be able to buy something for a lot less if the costs keep going up? Oh, that's the thing, right? I mean, in the end, and what we've seen at the provincial level and people saying, we'll put in a 15% buyer tax, the politicians want to be very careful to say, well, we have certain levers we can pull, but do you want to correct the market? 40, 50, 60% and see all that equity disappear? People will say people's equity. I would think from a political perspective, you're saying voters' equity. And those voters <laughs> the next time around will remember that you are the one who did this to their home equity. I want to throw out a thing. I don't know if you saw it, uh, Todd, but this was interesting. There be, people are talking about, okay, so what do we do? What are the creative solutions? we got to just throw out even ideas if they're wild. The McDonald Laurier Institute came up with a paper talking about this national housing strategy, saying before it came out, this is going to be a missed opportunity if they don't talk about affordability issues and not just social housing. And in the end, it was just about social housing and not about affordability. They threw this one out there and they said, this, you know, people might think this is far-fetched, but what if, if, 
as you use your TFSA, which you can right now to save money, if you want to use it for a down payment on a home, that's fine. That's your money. And that, that was the vehicle you used. What if there was some sort of government matching, like a uh, registered education savings plan, where if you put in so much towards a down payment, they put in some money as well to help you get to that 20%. When I first read that, I was like, wow, that is a crazy idea. And they even said in the report, this is a bit far-fetched, and I've, I've, I've shared it with a few other people in the BNN newsroom, like, what? Where does that money come from? In the end, it comes from the taxpayer. But, I mean, it just sort of goes to the point that no one has any solutions and people are just throwing wild stuff out there. What would you? What would your take be on that if the government actually helped match some funds so you can get a down payment together to the tune of 20%? Wow. You know, I don't know about that because does 20% get them any further? I mean, you know, I, I understand we've got stress tests out there. We take a look at what BC did, if you remember, last year. You know, they hopped on the bandwagon where they're going to give them basically an interest-free loan of 5%. So and then everyone jumped on them and said, what are you doing? All you're doing is putting more demand in the market. This is the problem we have. There's too much demand. Exactly. So so now we're making it a little bit easier for the threshold for them to get into the market. But then again, you know, they, they structured it as as a loan, not, you know, here's a freebie. Mm-hmm. So the, que- the, the real question is, is that, you know, is it that, you know, markets will tend to go up. I mean, you know, you got to take a look at Tokyo. You got to take a look at San Francisco. San Francisco. You got to take a look at New York. We got to take a look at these marketplaces that are world class markets. I mean, you know, you're two, three thousand dollars a square foot in in New York proper. Why is it that we have to get the government to intervene to try to make square footage affordable here in the two major markets in Canada? When if we take a look at a place like Windsor, and yeah, I get it. Not everybody's going to want to move there, but you know, it's it's ninety nine dollars a square foot. Yeah, and you talk about uh, the thing about the national housing strategy. They talk about housing as a right, and I I would agree that no one should be on the street, no one should be homeless. They should be addressing these issues for the most at risk Canadians. But if you talk about a guy like me, uh, and housing being a right, I mean I have a, I have a house. It's forty five kilometers northwest of Toronto. It's out in Brampton, and I come in on the train every day. So I don't think there's a right in a free market for me to live in Toronto. That would be a choice I'd have to make. It would have to be a smaller house with less land, and I've made my choice. So when people talk about the idea of, of housing as a right, obviously people shouldn't be on the street, but at the same time, when I talk to young people and say, I'm never gonna afford a house in Toronto, and I say, well, guess what? I don't live in Toronto. <laughs> I don't live in Toronto, and I don't think my life is all that horrible. Yeah, it yeah. takes me a little time to get back and forth, but do I have a right to live in Toronto? Probably not, it's it's a free market. and. Uh, and I know it's hard for people to get into that market, but maybe you get pushed out of the city just like I did. Well, you know what? I'm going to talk more about your rights when we come <laughs> back after this quick break. So stay with us, folks. I've got Greg Bennell from BNN, and we'll be right back after this. And welcome back. If you're just tuning in, my guest right now is Mr. Greg Bennell. You know him from BNN. He's a great uh, great guest of Simply Real Estate right here. Always love talking to Greg. And Greg, just before the break, we were talking about your rights. Your rights, yeah. <laughs> that, that was the national housing strategy, right? And they're talking about the fact that the, when they bring the legislation, they're going to make housing a right. And, I, and I, I agree with that from a certain perspective in the sense that I don't want to see people on the street. If they need to put money into building affordable housing to keep people from being homeless, this is the kind of country I think think that we want to be. But then you start, that's social housing, that's affordable housing. As you said, yep. we start talking about affordability issues. And, you know, it's, it is crazy the fact that the average family cannot afford the average home in Toronto or Vancouver. But at the same time, how far do those rights extend? Do you have a right to, to live and work in the same city? Or maybe you have to live outside the city. I live outside the city. It was a choice I made. It was about a few different sort of things. But yeah, it becomes an interesting argument. I know there's other people who argue, too, that you're going to hollow out a city if the people who 
you know, work in it, can't live in it. But it's, it's a tough discussion to have, and, and it comes back to what you and I were talking about before. What can the government do? I mean, this is, this is a free market to a large extent, and how many levers can they pull, and what do they want to achieve? In the end, affordability in those markets means a, a crash, a correction of 40, 50, 60 percent. I don't think a lot of people would be happy with that either. No, and, and you know, they can just lose all their baby boomer votes if that happens. But, you know, my, my big thing, and, and, and I want to talk to you about this, is the, the definition of affordable housing, you mm-hmm. know, and this, this is that tough one. You know, they're, they're, if you remember, you know, for a few years back, a long time ago, they built up co-ops and then, you know, you've got affordable housing. So you have these, you have this price point, entry point, you know, you, you do get scrutinized to be able to buy or rent, but at the end of the day, where is uh, where's going to be the threshold of affordable housing? Is it going to be, you know, uh, oh, well, uh, everything should be affordable up to 2,000 square feet? Like where, because eventually it starts to cross over, not just from the dollar value, but the actual, uh, the actual physical uh, aspect of the actual property. So, you know, so people are sitting there saying, well, you know, we can't live in a one-bedroom apartment or a two-bedroom apartment. We need a three-bedroom. So at what point can they draw a line here? This This is going to get... I think if the government keeps going down this road, I think it's going to create a bigger mess than if they had let a natural market happen. Yeah, they haven't given us any definitions either. The, the, the other thing was about in the national housing strategy was a benefit that could equal $2,500 a year for a family in need to put towards rent. And that just wouldn't be about uh, social housing. That could be in the private rental market. But there, obviously there'd be an economic threshold. But they didn't tell us, they didn't give us those, we didn't get the meat on the bones of this, right? We got some bones, but we don't really know about all the thresholds for this and that. And they're great questions as to what is affordable slash social housing. What does it mean in terms of your income or your family income, where, where, is the, where are the thresholds, how do you access these kind of things? These are the kind of details we can expect later. But yeah, right now, a lot of people are left scratching their heads saying, I can't afford to live in this city, but I don't think I would be considered a person in need based on you know my family economics. But at the same time, I'm still not getting that house in Toronto. Yeah. So should should this also take this out of the federal hands and now maybe designate this more towards the municipalities or I hate to say it province because, you know, quite frankly, I have no faith in the people that are running our province. But, you know, more of let's say more a little bit closer to home, because I mean, you know, when you when you when you take everything with a broad stroke, you know, there are going to be people out there that they really do need assistance. Okay, Mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily the people that are living in Toronto or Vancouver. I mean, you know, you know, Crimea River, you can't get, you know, you know, an 800 square foot unit downtown because it's too expensive. Well, do you really need it at the to make sure that you can walk to everything? Do you know what I mean? Like this is to me, this is this has been part of my struggle over the last 24 months when the government started, you know, talking about, oh, they're going to start implementing this because they want to control the real estate market. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing for them to control and to the extent that they only want to pull little levers but not really control it but try to and touch it at the margins. And in the end, you start to wonder about, okay, where are the solutions? You got to bring it down to maybe the city level. And you and I have talked about this before. If Toronto and Vancouver are going to become like those global cities and it's just a, a fact of reality that you're probably not going to live you know, in a Manhattan or live right in the core of London or Tokyo if you're not making the big bucks in the financial sector, then... If you end up stuck in apartments, maybe then I this, this is an interesting argument from Ryerson, right? Where maybe we're just not building the right condos. Then, if you want families, perhaps to say, okay, I can be a condo dweller for the rest of my life, then you need to build a condo that looks a little more family friendly. So, it's the, probably more of the solutions are probably more at the ground level. They're probably at the developer level, at the city level. In terms of what Ottawa can do, I mean, they, they can 
covered tax policy, obviously financial regulation, but the financial regulation side, and we've talked about this as well on the stress test, that's about making sure the financial system doesn't cave in on itself if something goes wrong. It's not about trying to get you know, a young couple into a place in downtown Vancouver because they don't want to leave the city. I don't think the government's too worried about that. They're worried about a big ripple-through effect of the financial system that does damage to the economy. Yeah, and, and you know, the stress test coming in in January, everybody is, you know, anticipating that. They're, everybody's kind of sitting on the on the sidelines wondering if that's going to have a big dip into the market. Of course, you know, and, and the problem, and you and I know this cyclically, the, the market is normally at its worst in January. This is where everybody's mm-hmm. anticipating their visa bill from Christmas because they overspent on little Jimmy's present. And so now we've our problem is is that, you know, we're gonna we're gonna hear that, oh, the market's turned down. Well, that's a natural market. Now you've got the stress test. It'll be interesting, I think, when you and I have a conversation in February, you know, where the market is and what everybody's going to blame. Because quite frankly, I think what happens is that when the government starts to implement some of these tasks of theirs, you know, I think the wind government's going to turn around and say, look, we cooled the market. It was all us. Mm-hmm. No, actually, um, you know, this was, you know, the, the mortgage rule changes and the fact that we just hit a January market that's supposed to be normal. And the other thing we're waiting for on those stress tests, because of course that's from OSFI, the federal regulator of the of the banks that fall under their uh, their mandate, their jurisdiction. The credit unions don't, and we're hearing from it seems that in BC the credit unions aren't going to go along with it. There's some encouragement and say, well, usually they adopt these regulations, but if the credit unions in the two biggest provinces, Ontario and BC, and it seems that BC is not going this way, they don't have to. They're not obliged to put these stress tests in place, and if they don't. Well, if, if you can't qualify under the new stress test at the big banks, maybe you become a part of a credit union, you get your mortgage there. So some people are telling me if the credit unions don't go along with it and start getting more strict in terms of their testing, then uh, you're not going to see the big hit that everyone thinks that they were going to see from this. And of course, and if you don't want to go to a credit union, maybe you just go off to the shadow banking sector. That's a big fear too. As you try to make the world a safer place with rules, some people will go to the margins and the more dangerous places and, and start playing there because they, they can't play in the safe playpen. <laughs> you know, I, I'd almost start talking to you about the legalization of marijuana, but I don't think you want to go there. <laughs> it's not all that together. <laughs> Taking a look at the market right now, obviously um, numbers numbers are not quite out for the month, but we know that there's been a little bit of heat uh, in the last kind of last few weeks. People, you know, trying to get ahead of obviously the stress test. Uh, builders now, you know, they seem to be, you know, waffling on closing some of their properties because they're saying that ex- things are getting too expensive. Are you finding that the developers are starting to question Toronto at all because of the expense? I was actually talking to the people from uh, Madame Homes, and of course, if anyone who lives in the GTA knows them as, you know, a huge builder. And uh, they, they see, they've, for the past couple of years, and they continue to see more opportunity in the United States in terms of the bang for their buck at their, th- their market. And that's another thing, too. If, if, if you really feel that it's a supply issue and people are very torn on this, it takes a long time. It's, you can't say, oh, okay, well, we have this land put aside. Let's build a house on it tomorrow and solve all these problems. All, all the solutions we seem to have are four or five years down the road. Even the national housing strategy, we're talking about certain elements of it not kicking in until 2020 and after that. Everyone says, we have a now problem right now. We don't have any now solutions. We have something that's going to kick in four or five years from now. But as to the point of the heat in the market in Toronto and Vancouver, it's very interesting, and you're probably seeing this too, that it's in condos. Condos. It's, I've had people in Toronto tell me that the single family homes that we were saying that's where all the demand was, they've gotten so expensive that people have actually turned their sights to the condo market. And if the regular buyer turns to the condo market, I have to think the investor is turning their mind to the condo market too. 
Yeah, and I think I think if the builders, you know, are starting to read the market well enough, they know that building the larger condos is probably the smarter approach. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, the two plus one or the three bedroom condos. Uh, you know, you had alluded to it earlier. You know, make them a little bit more family friendly. I think I think some of them are catching up on that, and you know, some of the developers are even taking a look at you know the old twenty story apartments, saying, "Hey, listen, could we vacate them, knock them down, and w- go up to fifty stories?" And you know, I think that we're going to start seeing more and more buildings repurposed to allow people to be able to create you know more of that lifestyle in the sky, and without any you know we we can't add land. So I think that the developers of the future are going to be the, the people that will be most successful are going to be the ones that are going to create, I guess, more diversity in the product instead of just thinking one bedroom, one bedroom only. Yeah, one bedroom that we can rent out to a bachelor and I can make money off of it. I actually had a three-bedroom condo not far from Trinity Bellwoods Park, which is a bit west of the downtown core. And now that I'm thinking about, why did I move to the suburbs? <laughs> what, was I th- what was I thinking? I, was I got I two kids. We had three bedrooms. We had a walking distance to a park and streetcars. Maybe I'm just as crazy as everyone else. Yeah, but you know what? Here, 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 here's the one. Here's the one problem with it, though, is that of course the maintenance fees. You know, yeah. we've got to keep our eye on them because a lot of the introductory maintenance fees are not the ones that people are going to see for fruition. So, you know, you you own a you own a brand new brand spanking new condo. Yeah, two hundred bucks sounds awesome, it does, and then it needs yeah. repairs, and the condo fee goes up, it goes up, it goes up. You see some of those older condos, fees are eight, nine hundred dollars. You're like, oh my god. Well, you're over a thousand yeah. for some of those for some of the nicer ones, and so this is the thing. Sure, you can buy it great square footage, but at the end of the day. There you go. You're going to have a, a huge condo fee. So are you, uh, any predictions for uh, 2018 for me? Oh, I don't like to give predictions at all. Even the, even the people with the bigger brains than me who know to crunch the numbers of the past few years kept talking about what the market was going to do, and it just didn't do it. So I'm, just, uh, I'm the observer. I'm the, uh, I'm the reporter guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? I, I don't think anybody could have uh, you know, hedged the crystal ball. But um, Remember a couple years ago we were building too many condos in Toronto, and it was all going to yep. fall apart because of that, and the yep. economy was going to be destroyed, and now people are snapping up condos uh, like there's nobody's business. Well, we'll have to just wait to see what else the provincial government will do. Anyways, listen, Greg, always a pleasure having you on the show. Always great to be here. Folks, that was Mr. Greg Benell from BNN. Always great to have him contribute. Uh, I also want to thank Mr. James Bell, Managing Director of Tax Solutions Canada. He's a former CRA investigator. Make sure you reach out to him if you've uh, got yourselves uh, a little bit caught on one of those cells. Anyways, uh, I want to uh, thank my producer, Ian Grant. As usual, he makes it simple for me. And I want to thank you for listening uh, each week. Remember, I'm back next Saturday at 3 p.m. I'm your host, Todd C. Slater. You've been listening to Simply Real Estate right here on News Talk 1010.